1: In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 26, Abscam, an FBI sting that ended in the arrests of seven U.S. legislators.
0: December, 1979. South Carolina Congressman John Genrette and his friend John Stowe sat in a townhouse in Washington, D.C., considering
1: a bribe. Across the table from them was Anthony Amoroso, aide to Sheikh Yassir Habib. The Sheikh had some minor immigration problems, the kind of difficulties Jenrette could easily clear up by introducing tailor-made legislation. In exchange for the Congressman's help, the Sheikh offered $50,000 in cash.
0: Genret hemmed and hawed for a while, before finally admitting he was in trouble in his home state for tampering with a grand jury. If that investigation moved forward, Genret confessed, his name on legislation would be worth, quote, "...toilet paper."
1: Amoroso asked whether Genrette would make the deal, provided the South Carolina investigation against him was dropped.
0: Suddenly, the legislator became enthusiastic, I got larceny in my blood, he chortled. I'd take it in a goddamn minute.
1: Across the table, the sheikh's aides sat back in his chair, stunned. He'd just gotten exactly what he needed to take down a sitting congressman.
0: Yasser Habib didn't exist. Amoroso was an undercover FBI agent, and he'd taped the whole meeting. Now, Congressman Genrette was headed for jail.
1: Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar.
0: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: The FBI's abscam case showed the American public exactly how low many elected officials were willing to go for money. It put crooked legislators behind bars. Many Americans applauded the Bureau for exposing the con men in Congress.
0: But some say abscam was the FBI's retaliation against Congress for investigating federal agents' abuse of power. Defense attorneys accused the Bureau of entrapment, legal speak, for tricking someone into committing a crime in order to prosecute them. And finally, the FBI's use of fictitious shakes was criticized for playing up harmful stereotypes of Middle Eastern people.
1: We'll leave it up to you to decide whether the ABSCAM investigation should be celebrated for cleaning out corruption in Congress or scorned for helping to usher in an era of domestic surveillance and Islamophobia.
0: While the FBI may have been calling the shots, Melvin Weinberg was ABSCAM's leading man. Born on December 4, 1924, he started scamming in elementary school stealing gold stars from his first-grade teacher's desk.
1: His father's small glass installation business just covered the Weinberg family's tiny Bronx apartment. Meanwhile, a few blocks away, some of Mel's friends lived in suburban homes with big, grassy lawns. This inequity made him furious.
0: Young Melvin decided that if life wasn't fair, then he wouldn't be either. He was going to become wealthy, by hook or by crook.
1: Yet on December 7, 1941, the attack of Pearl Harbor interrupted Melvin's plan to get rich. Like so many other young American men, he volunteered for World War II. He was only 17, but the Naval Construction Force, or Seabees, accepted him.
0: While serving his country, Mel found time to help himself, too. He recalled, quote, I learned that just as long as you march into some supply house with a bunch of guys and look like you know what you're doing, you can march out with your arms full and nobody's going to ask you a question.
1: The Melvin Weinberg signature was born. Act like you belong there, sell your story with confidence, and you'll get away with just about anything.
0: After leaving the military in 1946 at the age of 21, Melvin went to work as an enforcer for the Glaziers Union. His job was to break the windows of businesses who hired non-union glass installers.
1: Every night, Mel broke a few windows. The next day, he showed up on behalf of his glass company, offering to replace them.
0: Mel's scam raked in the cash. So much of it, in fact, that he had to find new places to put his money. He started buying dry-cleaning businesses and hamburger shops.
1: By the early 1970s, Mel had all the hallmarks of a mid-level crook. The gambling habit, the long nights drinking, the friends who borrowed his dry-cleaning trucks to pull hijackings. Still, it wasn't enough. Mel wanted to be rich, not just comfortable and connected. Looking for ways to earn more money, he found out about front-end loan scams. They were the hot new thing in financial crimes at the time. Here's the basic rundown. They prey
0: on anyone desperately in need of a loan, who often can't qualify through a traditional bank. That's the mark. In comes the scammer, who pretends to represent a foreign bank with money to lend. The complicated application process makes the mark trust the scammer, who then offers to process their loan application for a fee, of course, of a couple grand.
1: The funny thing about this scam is sometimes it worked in favor of the Marks. Their initial loan application to the foreign bank would be rejected, of course, because the bank was fake and had no money. But after breaking this bad news, Mel would reassure the Mark that for a little more money, they could get certificates of deposit from the offshore bank, verifying that they had deposited a large sum. The Mark could then use that as collateral to get an actual loan from a local bank.
0: The Mark got their loan, Mel got his cash, and prosecuting this kind of crime was a low priority. Marks who reported front-end scams to the feds were told to try suing in civil court. Should that ever happen, well, Mel had great lawyers on call.
1: Front-end scams became Mel's life's work. He even involved his girlfriend, Evelyn, a British expatriate, 18 years his junior. He would call her Lady Evelyn and pretend she was one of Britain's wealthiest women. If an ugly little bald guy had a gorgeous British heiress on his arm, potential Marx would think he had to be very rich. Mel didn't tell her she was part of a fraud. Evelyn just thought he liked to see her play the role.
0: Mel managed to rake in enough money to take his company, London Investors, international. By the mid-'70s, he was offering loans to businessmen and crime bosses all over the world.
1: But while Mel was expanding his wallet, the FBI was expanding its ability to prosecute these scams. After Watergate, the G-men began to focus on white-collar crime. And in February of 1977... Mel was indicted by a federal grand jury in Pittsburgh for wire fraud, mail fraud, and conspiracy.
0: The FBI could have just thrown the king of front-end scams in jail. But one supervising agent, John Good, had a better idea. Mel was maybe the most gifted con artist the FBI had ever come across. Why put a perfectly good FBI informant behind bars?
1: That didn't mean he trusted him. John Good studied Mel Weinberg like a textbook, and he spotted one big weakness, the so-called Lady Evelyn. The FBI got a warrant for her arrest and dangled it in front of Mel.
0: Mel was forced to tell Evelyn about his real occupation and that she, too, was now implicated. As she sobbed, Mel promised her that he'd make things right. He did so by calling the FBI and telling them he'd plead guilty if only they'd let Lady Evelyn go. Of course, that was exactly what they wanted.
1: The FBI has big plans and a long leash for Mel Weinberg.
0: And now, back to the story.
1: In 1977, 52-year-old international con artist Mel Weinberg made a deal with the FBI. If they let his 34-year-old girlfriend, Evelyn Knight, walk free, he'd take a plea deal, even if it meant going to jail.
0: The FBI, or more specifically 41-year-old supervising agent John Good, had no intention of letting Mel do
1: time. A clean-cut, blue-eyed Bronx native just like Mel Good was the son of a federal agent. He'd never even considered another career. Now, with 16 years of experience under his belt, he was looking to make his name.
0: The 1970s world of high-stakes financial crimes was the place to do it. Agent Good believed Mel could be highly valuable as an FBI middleman, luring his fellow con artists into various traps.
1: With this in mind, Agent Good sent two of his men, Myron Fuller and Jack McCarthy, to negotiate with Mel. They told the con man that he and Evelyn could both stay out of prison on the stipulation that Mel deliver other white-collar criminals to the FBI.
0: Mel had no choice but to agree. But at first, he was far from eager to help.
1: The way Mel saw it, Agents Fuller and McCarthy were bland cops who lacked the creativity of their boss, Agent Good. They'd be of little help as he tried to snare his fellow scammers. So Mel set about concocting his own traps. Such was the invention of an unseen, wealthy Arab businessman that Mel would pretend to represent. This was
0: 1977. And OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, was a hot topic in the United States. Just four years before, the 1973 oil crisis had sent gas prices in the U.S. through the roof. Anti-Arab sentiment in the U.S. spiked, and the archetype of the oil-rich sheikh became a pop culture boogeyman.
1: Mel knew how Crook's minds worked, being one himself. They were always looking for a bigger mark. His imaginary Arab would be a big fish, but still a believable one. His targets would bend over backwards for it. And then, when they slipped up, Mel would hand them to the FBI.
0: Mel even provided his own recording apparatus to tape his phone calls with targets, lest the FBI accuse him of lying about his conversations.
1: Pretty soon, Mel and his imaginary Sheikh caught their first fish. Joe Trochio, a heavy working for a front-end scammer named Fred Pro.
0: Mel called Trochio about his Arab friend who was looking to make an investment in a criminal enterprise. Trochio and Fred Pro were quick to bite, offering to provide Mel with samples of counterfeit money they were printing. If his friend liked it, he too could invest in the counterfeiting ring.
1: It only took Mel three months to wrap the Pro Trochio case. By then, he'd gathered enough evidence for the FBI to raid pro's offices, arrest them, and put both in prison for years.
0: Supervising agent John Good was impressed. Sure, Fuller and McCarthy remained Mel's handlers, but the supervising agent started sending him leads directly.
1: By the end of 1977, Mel got a little promotion, if you will. He was tasked with investigating high-dollar crimes like art heists, Another agent, Tom McShane, asked for Mel's help in entrapping a thief peddling stolen paintings worth a million bucks.
0: Catching the thief was no problem for Mel. He even bargained the price of the paintings down to $750,000 before arranging a deal.
1: The company that had insured the stolen paintings further surprised Mel with a $10,000 reward worth about $42,000 today.
0: By the next year, Supervising Agent Good suggested they level up Mel's operation. Now, not only would he be posing as an associate of a fictitious wealthy Arab, they'd use the full might of the FBI to back up his story. He could lure in bigger crooks with a more legitimate-seeming background story. Mel invented a new shake— a fictional millionaire named Kambir Abdul Rahman and registered a shell corporation to match Abdul Enterprises Limited. The FBI got a high-ranking bank official involved who would vouch for Rahman's wealth. And, as the icing on the cake, the Bureau created a real bank account for the sheikh and deposited a cool million bucks.
1: This new operation was christened ABSCAM. That was short for Arab Scam at first. When it was brought up immediately that this was offensive, they decided it meant Abdul Scam. This wasn't exactly inoffensive either, but at least it was the actual name of their front company. Ab Scam's
0: first victim was another art thief. This one proved so dim-witted that when the undercover agent playing Sheikh Kambir Abdul Rahman didn't say one word in Arabic during the entire meeting, he didn't even question it.
1: The FBI decided Mel was so valuable, he deserved more than just his freedom as compensation. In July of 1978, Mel was placed on the FBI's formal payroll. He only earned $12,000 a year, or less than $50,000 in today's dollars, but they also provided him with office space for Abdul Limited, as well as the use of a private plane and a specially equipped van.
0: This welcome news went a long way towards helping Mel take pride in his undercover work. It wasn't quite the lifestyle he'd once enjoyed, but he was having a good time anyway. Mel moved on to tackling securities hucksters, many of them running versions of his old scam about fraudulent certificates of deposit. Whenever one of his targets got suspicious, Mel pulled out that soothing voice he used to use on the shopkeepers with broken windows he could make just about anyone believe he had their best interests in mind.
1: To keep Mel's cover from being blown, the FBI was careful when arresting his targets. If Mel had to be present, they'd rough him up like any other scammer. Meanwhile, he'd angrily accuse the target of having brought a rat to the negotiating table. They'd also pretend to arrest any undercover agents playing the Sheik's employees. If it was done right, The arrestee believed that one of his own associates was an informant, not Mel.
0: This formula made perfect sense to all involved. Send the ex-scammer after scammers, rinse, repeat. To Mel, it was the Super Bowl of scam, an opportunity to go up against the best in his old business and beat them. Neither Mel nor the FBI intended for Abscam to target corrupt politicians. For his part... Mel had almost no interest in politics at all. The government was just a bunch of fellow crooks who'd found a legal scam.
1: Then, in October of 1978, came small-time fraudster Bill Rosenberg. Mel thought at first that Rosenberg wanted to sell the shake fraudulent certificates of deposit. But when Rosenberg
0: arrived at Mel's rented office on Long Island, he presented the Abdul Limited staff with a series of business proposals. He wasn't trying to sell securities. He was looking for an investor for various shady projects.
1: According to him, one local politician, the mayor of Camden, New Jersey, could be bribed. In exchange, Camden could provide equipment, business licenses, and city permits.
0: Abscam had been created to prosecute financial crimes. But the FBI wasn't going to ignore a mayor on the take, not when he was being served up to them like a Christmas ham. With a little pivoting, they could pursue bribery and corruption charges.
1: Due to a quirk of the city's gambling licensing, Atlantic City casino builders couldn't finance their projects through U.S. banks. So Rosenberg proposed that Abdul provide loans for the construction. And once the casinos were built, They'd bribed the mayor to ensure they were approved for gambling licenses.
0: On December 1st, Mayor Angelo Arachetti arrived at Abdul Limited's Long Island headquarters. He agreed to guarantee the gambling licenses in exchange for $400,000. He told Mel, quote, I'll give you Atlantic City. Without me, you do nothing.
1: The FBI could have put Eric in handcuffs on the spot. But completely of his own accord, the mayor went on to offer to introduce the sheik to other corrupt politicians. No reason to arrest just one mayor when you could use him to get every bribe-taker on the eastern seaboard.
0: Finally, Mel had found a target truly worthy of his talents as a con man. He continued to build his relationship with Mayor Eric Ketty through a series of
1: phone calls and meetings. And soon, the two were bosom buddies. The mayor even cut Bill Rosenberg out of their relationship, preferring to deal directly with Mel.
0: The tables had turned in less than two years. At the beginning of Abscam, the Bureau had the power to hold prison time over Mel's head. Now, he had even more leverage than they did. Without Mel in the operation, they'd lose far more important arrests.
1: So, Mel took a stand in the form of demanding new handlers. He was tired of dealing with Agent McCarthy. If he wasn't replaced, Mel was out.
0: Agent Good knew he couldn't replace McCarthy, but admitted that he wasn't the best fit for the job. So, he called up Agent Anthony Amoroso. Born in the Bronx, like Mel, Agent Amoroso was a soothing, cool-headed type who came bearing good news. Supervising Agent Good was also giving Mel a raise to $3,000 per month, or about $12,000 today. Thus, a winning team was born. Their first task was to nail the mayor. They needed to get him on tape taking a bribe.
1: On January 29, 1979, They got the shot. A video camera was concealed in a filing cabinet in Abdul Limited headquarters.
0: Mayor Ericchetti arrived on time. After suggesting that the sheikh hire one of his friends, he slipped the two envelopes of cash into his suit jacket and departed. It was the first time in American history an elected official was videotaped taking a bribe.
1: The mayor of Camden was the first politician caught by Abscam. Now he was about to unwittingly help the FBI snare the second. Mayor Eric Ketty had no idea he'd been caught on tape or that Abdul Limited wasn't an actual criminal organization. After all, Mel gave him a bribe. A federal sting operation would never have given him real cash, or so he thought. So Eric Ketty was still more than willing to vouch for the imaginary shake to his fellow crooked politicians.
0: Mel decided to give Erichetti a little push. He convinced Supervising Agent Good and the FBI brass to let him throw a party in the mayor's honor using an abandoned Miami yacht recently seized by the FBI. Surely Araketi couldn't resist inviting his politician cronies to a party celebrating him.
1: Agent Goods signed off on the plan, and it was decided that an Arabic-speaking FBI agent named Richard Farhart should portray Amir Yasser Habib at the party.
0: On March 24, 1979, Mel was ready to welcome guests on board. It was a dangerous gambit, But if it worked, the corrupt mayor would be thrilled with the personal attention from what he believed to be a wealthy oil magnate.
1: The gamble paid off. Senator Harrison Arlington Williams Jr. of New Jersey showed up to honor the mayor of Camden. Agent Farhart turned in a prize-winning performance in disguise as Amir Habib, even presenting Mayor Erichetti with a ceremonial saber supposedly from his country. It was actually from the flea market.
0: The mayor was moved by the gesture. Soon after the successful party, he offered to introduce Mel to 13 corrupt members of the New Jersey state legislature. He also wrote out a list of federal and state officials that he believed could be bought.
1: Mel decided to push his luck a little bit and told Eric a cockamamie story about needing cash to finance some repairs on the yacht. They happened to cost exactly $25,000, and he couldn't tell his boss about it because, you see, the damage was one of his staff's fault, and he didn't want them fired.
0: Mayor Eric Ketty eagerly returned his twenty-five grand bribe to Mel, telling him to use it for the boat. Mel smugly returned the cash to the FBI to pay for the party. He was winning in everyone's eyes.
1: Before the spring of 1979 was over, Mel would hook Senator Williams, too. As it turned out, just like the mayor, the senator had his own sketchy business proposal for Abdul Limited.
0: That's coming up next.
1: And now, back to the story.
0: In April of 1979... 54-year-old conman-turned-FBI informant Mel Weinberg made contact with New Jersey Senator Harrison A. Williams. His goal was to get him to accept a bribe from the imaginary Sheikh and emir behind Abdul Limited, a fake company set up by the FBI.
1: As with Camden, New Jersey, Mayor Angelo Arichetti before him, Senator Williams was excited to hammer out a business deal with Abdul Limited. — He'd been unable to finance it through U.S. funders.
0: The senator and his business partners wanted to purchase a titanium mine, one of the few in the U.S., so they asked the emir for a $100 million loan.
1: As far as assurances that they'd pay back the loan, the senator's business partners explained that the U.S. government was about to use a lot of titanium for military projects, like building submarines. With the mine in hand, they'd easily pay back their nine-figure debt.
0: Senator Williams also implied he'd influence the federal government to buy his titanium for their military projects. So not only was he open to bribes, he was abusing his seat in the
1: Senate. On June 28th, Mel met with the senator again. This time, he got him to state his plans very plainly on tape. Quote, With great pleasure, I'll talk to the President of the United States about it. It, of course, being lucrative defense contracts. The senator was offering his influence over the president as collateral to get a loan.
0: Abscam had lucked into its first big-time Washington politician. There was nothing holding back Agent Good from seeing how many bribe-takers he could snare. The whole unit became focused on using each corrupt mark lure in the next one.
1: In comparison to the FBI's investigations of ordinary criminals, Abscam was a house of cards. Targets had to be investigated simultaneously. If one of the politicians was arrested too soon, it would jeopardize their chances with the others.
0: This meant a lot of stalling and waiting. Mel kept promising Mayor Erichetti that money was coming in any day for his Atlantic City casinos. Meanwhile, on the other line was Senator Williams, still expecting his $100 million loan for the titanium mine. Every time one of them got suspicious, Mel was right there to reassure them. Miraculously, they kept believing.
1: On July 26, 1979, Agent Amoroso had an idea for how to catch even more corrupt politicians. He casually mentioned to Mayor Eric that Amir Habib, the character from the boat party dressed in a turban and sunglasses, was having some immigration trouble. During this conversation, Amoroso was in character as his abscam persona, an Abdul Limited employee.
0: The emir's war-torn homeland had become unstable, Amoroso said, and he hoped to seek asylum in the United States. Only he needed some brave politician to help him obtain that status because he didn't technically qualify.
1: Eric promised to introduce the Abdul team to some congressmen who would do favors, as long as someone covered their expenses.
0: Code for a bribe, of course. Agent Amoroso's idea was a gold mine.
1: Once the spigot had been turned on, it was hard to turn off. Arachetti kept coming up with names of congressmen who could be bought. The FBI scrambled to keep up. They'd need video evidence of the legislators personally accepting bribes. They also needed to say on tape that they would help the Sheikh and Amir immigrate in exchange for the money.
0: The next move was to rig a hotel suite with video and audio recording equipment. Then, on August 22, 1979, Mel met with Congressman Michael Joseph Myers, a fast-talking 36-year-old Democrat representing the voters of Philadelphia.
1: Congressman Myers was hoping to meet Habib in person, but when he arrived, Mel explained that the emir was delayed due to an emergency in the Middle East. Myers nodded sagely and accepted that excuse.
0: Mel Amoroso, in his role as the emir's aide, and Mayor Erichetti were there to meet the congressman. They didn't even have to propose a bribe. Myers did it for them, saying, Money talks in this business.
1: Undercover agent Amoroso handed over a briefcase containing $50,000. Congressman Myers took it and literally ran out of the hotel to his car. Whether his reaction was paranoid or he was simply giddy with money lust is anyone's guess.
0: The routine continued with 41 year old Congressman Raymond Lederer, another Democrat from Pennsylvania. Just like Myers, he took the briefcase and agreed to introduce legislation giving the Sheikh and Emir asylum in America. He winked as he told the men in the hotel suite I'm no Boy Scout.
1: Definitely no Boy Scout. But he was headed for wearing a uniform, this one in an unflattering shade of orange.
0: By late 1979, the FBI was so pleased with Abscam's results that the Bureau brass authorized Supervising Agent Good and his team to use a Washington, D.C. townhouse for future meetings. It was federal property, but its status was classified Even legislators wouldn't know it belonged to the FBI. So they wouldn't get suspicious when they were invited there to meet with Abdul Limited.
1: Mel loved the new headquarters in Georgetown, one of D.C.'s wealthiest neighborhoods. Living large in a big shot's surroundings helped him convince himself he was a big shot.
0: After all, by this point, Abdul Limited had built quite a strong reputation. The operation began calling in other shady political insiders, known as bagmen, for help lining up meetings. These bagmen functioned as scapegoats for elected officials by handling their dirty work.
1: The FBI knew all about bagmen and how to counter them. They coached Mel and Amoroso to insist on personal meetings with congressmen. Once again, the playbook was the same hand off the $50,000 in a briefcase and get the elected official on tape, promising to help the emir and sheikh in return for the cash.
0: The third target came to the townhouse in October of 1979. Congressman Frank Thompson, a 61-year-old Democrat from New Jersey. He was an experienced politician and the chair of the House Administration Committee. He was also smarter than his predecessors. At first, he suggested investing the $50,000 in his district rather than paying it to him directly. Then, when Mel and Agent Amoroso pressured him to take the briefcase, he refused to touch it.
1: It wasn't that Thompson was clean. He just had a protocol for avoiding trouble. He wanted the briefcase to go to his middleman, Howard Crichton.
0: Amaroso refused to make the handoff to Cryden until he had Thompson on tape. He needed a recording that had the congressman promising to introduce a private immigration bill in exchange for the bribe. It took two meetings and plenty of negotiation in between to get him there, but finally he folded. The cash went to Cryden, but Thompson was caught regardless.
1: Variations of the same gambit worked on the next few targets, too. Another one of Crichton's associates, Congressman John Murphy, a 53-year-old Democrat from New York, was implicated despite his refusal to personally touch the bribe money. His presence at the meeting alone was plenty of evidence for the FBI.
0: Then came Congressman John Genrette. He was a 43-year-old South Carolina Democrat, best known on Capitol Hill for his across-the-aisle marriage to Republican opposition researcher Rita Genrette. It was also John who once said, I've got larceny in my blood.
1: And so he did. Genrette sent one of his associates, John Stowe, to collect the bribe. The congressman slipped up, though. He called Mel to acknowledge receipt and thanked him for the money. The call was taped.
0: Last to take the bait was 55-year-old Florida Congressman Richard Kelly, the only Republican to fall for abscam. On January 8, 1980, he came to the FBI townhouse with Gino Cusio, a cold-blooded mobster who scared even Mel.
1: Kelly wanted more than $50,000, so the men offered him a $25,000 down payment on a future $250,000 bribe. Craftily, Kelly waited until his mob associate was out of the room then stuffed the cash in his pockets.
0: Hiding it meant he might avoid giving the mafia their cut. The congressman was playing a very dangerous game.
1: But so was Mel. In fact, he was getting tired of it. Senator Williams was still hounding him about the titanium mine. It had been months now, and there were multiple close calls with legislators who refused to meet with the Abdul Limited group at all. If any of them were smart enough to suspect they had been flirting with the FBI rather than a wealthy emir, they might warn their fellows. If that
0: happened, well, guys like Congressman Kelly with mob connections might retaliate for being caught in a honey trap.
1: The FBI had six congressmen and one senator on tape taking bribes or agreeing to take bribes. In between those big fish, they'd also caught Eric three Philadelphia city councilmen, and an official with the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Trying to go for more seemed both greedy and risky.
0: Supervising agent John Good agreed. It was time to wind Abscam down and reveal the project to the public. He had his team begin preparing indictments.
1: On Saturday, February 2, 1980, The FBI arrested all their targets at once. It was a performance worthy of any cop drama on TV. They knocked on each elected official's door at the exact same time, so none of the guilty parties had time to hear the news and flee. It took over
0: 100 FBI agents to execute the mass arrest, which naturally alerted the media. NBC photographers caught the agents serving their warrant at the home of Senator Williams. Reporters worked tirelessly to figure out all the arrestees, just in time for a list to grace the front page of the next day's New York Times.
1: Mel Weinberg had worked off his debt to his country many times over. He was probably the best value any law enforcement agency ever got for a plea deal.
0: At first, Congress and the Senate closed ranks. House leadership, including Speaker Tip O'Neill, angrily accused the FBI of setting up congressmen. The target's defense attorneys said the same. They believed the FBI had coaxed their clients into taking bribes they otherwise would never have accepted.
1: But when the trials started, Congress sang a different tune. By the winter of 1980, grand juries returned indictments for bribery and conspiracy charges on all seven of the big fish and even the five small fry.
0: Congressman Michael Myers, the first to be indicted, was expelled from Congress on October 2, 1980. The vote was 376 to 30, making Myers the first sitting congressman expelled by the House since the Civil War. He went on to be convicted and sentenced to three years behind bars.
1: The Senate, too, was all set to expel Senator Williams, but he beat them to the punch by resigning. He was later convicted and served two years of a three-year sentence. Williams was the first senator in over 60 years to do time. Following suit,
0: Frank Thompson and John Genrette also resigned from Congress. Genrette was also lucky enough to get a sentence of divorce. From his wife Rita.
1: Raymond Letterer too, resigned while John Murphy and Richard Kelly lost re-election campaigns after being indicted.
0: Prosecutors in these cases scored a remarkable 100 percent conviction rate. Every politician charged in connection with Abscam was convicted of at least some of the charges against them. And they all served time in prison.
1: That includes Eric Hedy, the Camden mayor who started the Abscam snowball rolling downhill. A jury convicted him of bribery. The judge punished him with the heaviest sentence of all, six years. Though in the end, he only served 32 months.
0: The FBI agents, along with Melvin Weinberg, became temporary minor celebrities. But none really wanted the publicity. There were no tell-all book
1: deals. In fact... The most information the country ever got from inside the FBI about Abscam came from a Freedom of Information Act request. In response to that request, the FBI revealed an archive of newspaper clippings and letters from the public, most of them supportive of Abscam.
0: Over the years, though, several lawsuits were filed by the convicted public officials accusing the FBI of entrapment. All were unsuccessful— but some questions still linger. It's hard not to wonder, were all of those politicians really corrupt all along, or was Mel just such a good scammer he managed to corrupt them?
1: Mel himself was asked this question in 1981 on CBS's 60 Minutes. He replied with one of his favorite sayings, you can't con an honest man.
0: If that's true... Mel's life's work proves there might be far fewer honest men in politics than any of us would like to believe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal number 25, when the 1960 election pitted incumbent Vice President Richard Nixon against All-American Democrat John F. Kennedy, and questions of voting fraud abounded.
1: Among the many sources we used in researching this story, we found the book The Stingman Inside Abscam by Robert W. Green particularly useful.
0: You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.